when my dad retired, he said, well, you know, why don't we move back to Sicily? Welcome to Italy Inside Out. I'm your host, Andrea Aldrich. Sicily is an autonomous region of Italy and one of my favorite places to visit. The culture and cuisine reflect the influences left by centuries of invaders competing for the important strategic position of the island of Sicily. Jacqueline Olio is joining me today from Palermo to help unravel some of the complexities of the history and also tell us about more current life in Sicily. She is a historian, author, lecturer, and licensed Italian guide. We met several years ago when I was arranging a walking tour of Palermo with her for one of my groups. Welcome, Jacqueline. How are you today? Fine, Andrea. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be able to give a talk and and introduce Palermo and parts of Sicily. Before we get into more about Sicily and Palermo, would you tell me a little bit about your personal background? I know that you lived in California for a while and your family's from Sicily. That's right. I grew up in in, in L.A. And however, my parents uh, were both, because my dad's not among us anymore, my parents were both uh, from central Sicily. Uh, they, They moved to the U.S. when they were adults. Um, and, and so my sister and I were both born in, in Southern California. I was there uh, until I I was a teenager. And then, um, you know, be, be aware of the fact that we always kept connections with family here and, and we'd travel to Sicily often to keep family relations very strong. And one day when my dad retired, he said, well, you know, why don't we move back to Sicily? And it was a bit of a surprise for us. Um, we, we sort of had, had, had dreamt of doing that, but it, it wasn't a real plan until he said so. <laughs> and then a year later, I found myself in Palermo and with, in a new world, a completely new world as a teenager with all the difficulties that one would encounter at that age um, with, without mentioning the partial language barrier because I understood Italian, I understood Sicilian, but I mixed it up and I, I, I didn't know how to write it properly. Um, I studied some French in the US that helped with the grammar, but it's completely different. And then the social differences. Uh, Palermo in the late eighties was crazy. Nothing like today. Today it's a beautiful city, a splendid city, very active, um, very friendly, uh, open to visitors. But it was very difficult back then. Okay, and my sister and I were always looked down as the foreigners. I grew up speaking Sicilian at home and Italian, Sicilian cooking. So um, it took a few years to be accepted. Well, when we talked, um, when I first met you, you told me a little bit about the differences. And I think maybe that's what you're referring to somewhat about there was such a mafia presence in Palermo. Yes. And that's changed a bit. Would you just just a little brief history about the last years? Yeah, well, sure. When we moved here, um, 
you, you didn't necessarily encounter people from the mafia, or if you did, you wouldn't be aware of it because they would dress in normal casual clothes, uh, drive normal cars, uh, not expensive cars so that people, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't think that they were in the mafia. Um, and anyway, the point is that there was something, you felt that there was something wrong. Uh, it was as if there were um, a, I don't know, a, a, a smoke covering the city that you didn't see, but you felt it, this strong presence uh, pressing on you that there was something wrong. And even though there wasn't an actual curfew, we would never go out after dark during weekdays. You know, during the weekend, it was okay, or during holidays. But during weekdays, you were afraid. You never knew what would go on. Um, and this continued until the terrible 1992 bombings. You know, yesterday we commemorated the the death um, of Judge Borsellino, Paolo Borsellino, who died on the 19th of July of 1992, just two months after his colleague, uh, judge and prosecutor uh, Giovanni Falcone passed away. And I. I was thinking yesterday, I was looking out in my balcony. To, it was a beautiful sunny day like today. And, and I remember the 19th of July of 1992, just as if it were yesterday. I was out in the balcony, taking in some sun. It was like 3 p.m. All of a sudden, a gigantic explosion took place. Well, you could see it from there. It was horrible. It was horrible. I thought, I don't know, maybe one of our quarries, there was a dynamite explosion, people had died. And and then I turned on the radio 30 minutes later, they, they were saying how right in the city center, Judge Borsellino was blown up with his five police escorts, including a woman police officer, Emanuela Loy, who she was the first Italian um, police escort the first woman who had volunteered, and they all died with him, knowing fully well, just before it happened, that he was at risk. Because these men and women, because there were women involved too, uh, fighting against the mafia, they, they had held court cases against mafia dons uh, for years. And um, Judge Falcone, who was uh, Borsellino's colleague, had actually gone to Rome to work side by side with the justice ministry um, to change the laws, to make it tougher for crimes, uh, for mafia crimes to um, reach the statute of limitation. In fact, today there is no statute of limitation for mafia crimes um, and also to protect uh, police collaborators. That was, that was something very important because these judges would always say, um, unfortunately, in order to get you know, the sharks, the big ones, we have to um, collaborate with, you know, the small fish, so to speak. And and that's why they were killed. And and how has it changed then since then? Well, things started changing because just after, after the bombings, um, and, you know, think of it, my city, my beautiful city of Palermo being bombed. I, Palermo was being compared to Beirut at the time because there was a war going on at the same time with bombings going on, um, people started a protest. Whole families went into the city of Palermo walking, you know, dem to demonstrate, to protest against the government for the lack of help and, and um, lack of help, lack of support that 
that these judges and police forces were, were not being given. They weren't being given support, protection. Um, and, and so people started protesting, saying, we want our city back. We want Sicily back in our hands, out of the hands of the mafia. And these protests went on and on um, for days, people marching uh, at the, to the sites where these judges had been blown up with their police escorts. And, and then finally, things started to change. The government started to make a difference. Um, just a little parenthesis, um, that those same years, 1992, early 1993, um, the mafia, the dons, they felt that the government was out to get them. And so uh, there were bombings also in Florence at the Uffizi Gallery. Some people died by the mafia. And um, an attempt, uh, attempted bombing um, up, up in Milan against a TV um, talk show presenter, Maurizio Costanzo, who actually was not killed, but it was close. So the government came in. They sent police forces to Palermo, to Sicily, uh, army, young army soldiers to protect us. Out in the streets, there were people at every crossroad, at every intersection, at, um, along the highways, along the state roads, because they were trying to arrest the Dons. And in fact, a number of arrests took place. Uh, Totoriina from Corleone, Giovanni Brusca from there too. Um, and then in more recent years, Provenzano, a few of these people are not among us, among us anymore. They, they died in prison, um, serving life-term sentences, multiple life-term sentences. Um, and it, was, it was crazy, but it was the people who brought this on, who said, we've had enough. This is a beautiful city. We have an incredible history. Um, this Palermo used to be an important European capital in the past. Why is this happening to us? So people started to change. And, and today we have those the, the children from this time period, the young generation, they've grown up. Uh, they, they, um, they, 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 become, they become judges police officers, uh, prosecutors against the mafia. But today, something else has happened. Um, it's been about 16 years or so that the Sicilian government, I'll remind you that we're an autonomous region, just like, just like Scotland or Catalonia. Um, they introduced a law making it a requirement for every school in Sicily, be it private or uh, public, uh, to teach kids about the mafia, starting at at starting in first grade. Children learn about the mafia. They learn about people and uh, people being killed um, because they rebelled against the mafia, what the mafia is all about. And I'll remind you that there have been over a hundred children killed by the mafia. They were either, either the children of mm, mafiosi or they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there have been children at the age of 10, 11, 13, killed by the mafia. They were not part of gangs, Andrea. They just in the wrong family or at the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time. So if children learn about children like them being killed by the mafia, the idea you know, gets around that the mafia is bad and, and it, it's up to them to put an end to it completely. There's still a fight going on against the mafia, but it's very different today. 
feel more comfortable going out in the evening and, oh, and yeah. feel safe. It's fantastic mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Palermo, and then over the past, it's been about 10 years now that the city has has changed. Um, there's a lot of new life out there. Um, people go out all the time, um, even during weekdays. Um, it's a safe city. What made you decide to uh, become a historian? Um, it, it took a few years. I actually had started, um, I had gone gone through my, my studies and I, I had become a guide because I've been guiding for over 20, 25 years. And over the years I encountered, I was very fortunate because I encountered um, historians, scholars, who would, would come here with their groups from different universities all over the world. Um, they would lecture for their groups. And I always felt that I needed to learn more. Okay, I wanted to be up at the level of these groups that I was um, guiding around. And, and so I even started to do some of my own research. Uh, for example, there's a queen from Sicily. Her name was Margaret during the Middle Ages. Um, she was a queen during the Norman epoch, and I noticed that there wasn't enough information on her. Uh, nobody had ever written a book on her or even a chapter in, in, in a book uh, about queens in Europe. And so I started to do some research on my own, and in the end, I ended up writing a book on Queen Margaret of Sicily. But that's not the only thing. Another, another topic um, that um, only, you know, only in recent years has been, um, you know, in Sicily is uh, the topic of the Jews of Sicily. Um, There weren't many books out there. So I started to, even though I'm not Jewish, I'm Roman Catholic, but I started to do my own research. um, And I started to lead Jewish tours in Palermo about 20 years ago. Oh, that's interesting. At the time, I was the first guide in Palermo doing that. Today, there's a number of guides who have followed suit. Okay, so it, it was for my own personal reasons, and um, I started writing articles for a site called Best of Sicily, um, an online site. And at a certain point, um, the editor said, "Well, why don't we write a book together?" And then I started writing my own books. So one thing led to the other. <laughs> so you, have, how many books have you written now? Nine, more than nine. Um, you told me just recently you'd done a couple of ebooks during the lockdown. Yes, yes. I I turned some of my books, like Queens of Sicily and um, the Time Traveler's Guide to Sicily on Arab, Norman, and Byzantine, Palermo, Moriari, and Chefalu, into ebooks. Uh, also, Margaret, Queen of Sicily, became an ebook. However, I also published two books directly as ebooks because during the lockdown um, I thought it was a good idea. One is called Sicilian Court Culture um, and uh, you know regarding the Middle Ages. And the other one is called The Time Traveler's Guide, a uh, History of Sicily. Well, since we're on this subject, would you tell us a little bit about that period in history, the medieval period from the Arab to the through the Norman 
It's actually, in my opinion, opinion, the most exciting moment in Sicilian history and um, perhaps also an example for people to learn about and to follow in the future. Uh, what happened was this, uh, you know, Sicily's in the middle of the Mediterranean. So we've always uh, been influenced by different cultures from North Africa, the Eastern Mediterranean, but also from Southern Europe and even Northern Europe. Sicily is in a, cross a crossroads and it's a great place for trade reasons, military strategical reasons. It's a very fertile land. So over the years, we had various influences. Uh, during the um, early ninth century, the Muslims traveled from Northeastern Africa to Sicily. Um, and they found on the island, they, Sicily at the time was under Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire. So people were Christian. There were a lot of Jews too, but most people were Christian, um, uh, you know, Eastern Rite, what we'd call Orthodox Eastern Rite today. But the Muslims took over. And even though they spread Islam on the island, um, none, notwithstanding this, they actually invited large colonies of Berber Jews, Jews from North Africa to settle here. And um, they allowed some of the Christian communities up in villages and in small towns to keep their religion. Um, people who had not converted, unfortunately, had to pay a yearly tax to the Muslim community uh, called the Giza tax. In any case, during uh, by the 10th century, the Fatimid dynasty had taken over Sicily and the Fatimids who, were, who came from the area of Tunisia and Egypt, the Fatimids had connections with China, India, and places like Iran, the Persians, and they brought new, uh, they brought algebra and mathematics, uh, modern mathematics to Sicily, including um, Hindu Arabic numerals, um, with help from the Jews who eventually took this into their hands, this, this industry into their, their hands, that the, the uh, Muslims founded the silk, uh, silk factories in Sicily. They started to grow sugarcane. So that's why uh, Sicilian sweets are so special because we've been using sugar from sugarcane for over a thousand years. Um, so we're growing sugar here. They brought a lot of citrus fruit trees um, to the island, pistachios, uh, more and more almonds were being cultivated, uh, rice. We had rice patties on the island. Uh, think of arancini. Yes, arancini. Arancini is truly uh, an old recipe dating back to at least 800 years um, started in Sicily. Wow. Th this is what happened under the Muslims. Palermo became a thriving metropolis, one of the biggest cities in Europe with 100,000 people. The only other city in Europe that was bigger at the time was Cordoba. Muslim Cordoba had at least 300,000 people, if not more. And in any case, in the year 1072, the Normans took over Palermo. And during those years, they took over Sicily, Southern Italy, and Malta. And you would think that the Normans, uh, you think of Norsemen and Vikings, right? That they were, were coming here as crusaders, but that wasn't exactly the case. They got to Sicily, they saw how prosperous and wealthy this island was under the hands of the Muslims, uh, of the Fatimids. And they realized that to keep up this prosperity, this wealth, uh, this culture, this high level of culture, they, they had to become tolerant rulers. 
So that was the miracle that happened. The Norman kings and eventually queens became tolerant. Uh, they were Roman Catholic. They were with the Pope. Okay. In fact, they officially brought, brought the, the Church of Rome to Sicily. Um, but they became tolerant towards Muslims, Jews, and Byzantine Orthodox Christians. They didn't force anybody to convert to the Catholic Church. Um, and that was not the only thing. Um, over the years, uh, in particular, under the rule of King Roger II from um, the early uh, 12th century until uh, the middle of the 12th, uh, uh, until the middle of the 12th century, uh, people like King Roger II would hire um, people to work for him at very high, at a very high level, like governors, chancellors, admirals, uh, military commanders from any ethnic group. It, it didn't matter if you were a Muslim or you weren't Catholic, you were Greek Byzantine. If you were the right man for the job, you could have become, you could have been hired by the king. This continued with our queens too. So what I'm getting to is that this was the miracle that happened in Sicily, the great example. And we can see how the culture flourished when we visit sites like Montreale Cathedral, the Palatine Chapel, um, and, and much, much more here in Sicily. And is this considered the golden age of Palermo then? Yeah. Precisely. This is considered the golden age of Palermo. I like to consider it as our own renaissance. Mm. Okay, an early renaissance because it, it was during the 12th century that most of, of this flourished, okay, although it continued on to the first half of the 13th century. Um, however, um, it, kings like Roger II uh, were incredibly tolerant and, and ahead of their times. Um, a constitution was issued by the king, it's called the Assize Savariano, in which religious liberties were protected in 1140. And rape was made a crime, a felony, mm. because in Italy, rape was not a felonous crime until 1996. Amazing. Yeah. It was considered a minor crime. Huh. So yeah. that was an amazing moment for our history. What uh, are some of the lasting influences of that time in Palermo now in the way of buildings and um, traditions? Well, the buildings, um, I was mentioning the Norman Palace, where our Sicilian government um, has, um, has hold its parliament. Um, that building was founded um, as, a, as a castle by the Muslims and then rebuilt as a fortified palace under Roger II uh, during the 12th century. Inside, you can still visit the perfectly preserved Palatine Chapel which dates back to 1140, 1143. Palatine Chapel has a ceiling that seems as if it came out of a mosque. With um, it's, it's all in wood, painted with beautiful animals uh, and dancers and women, uh, women that represent the uh, virgins of paradise, of Quranic paradise. Uh, but this is a Catholic church. And more Muslim uh, geometric uh, decorations on the lower walls up above, Bible stories from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
The same goes for the actual um, altar area, the presbyterial area, where you can see Jesus as the Pantocrator, meaning the all-ruler, in the typical Greek Byzantine way. So it's a mix of styles. A Catholic church, it was, and it's always been a Roman Catholic church, built and decorated by Catholics, Muslims, and Greek Byzantine Christians. It's an incredible combination, and it's still in use. That's the number one place. Um, also in Palermo is Palermo Cathedral, uh, with a mix of styles that's still visible on, on the outside of the church. Um, and then, not too far from here, there's the town of Monreale, with a cathedral uh, built just a few years after the Palatine Chapel, but the chapel was taken as its model. Okay, so Byzantine, uh, Greek Byzantine, Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. and uh, Islamic decorations in a, another Roman Catholic cathedral. These are the main, there are many other buildings, but these are the main sites. Is it really true that more churches survive from the 12th century in Palermo than anywhere else in Europe? So it's true. We have more Norman churches, although they're Arab, Norman, Byzantine, more Nor Norman churches in the city of Palermo than, for example, in the city of London or in any other European city. Um, I, could, I could give you a list of minor churches. There's Mary Magdalene Church, uh, St. Uh, James Church, that are not open to the public regularly because they're part of a military base, but they're in the city, sometimes they're opened up. Then Santa Cristina, that's just behind the cathedral. All three of these churches are small, medieval, Norm, Arab Norman style churches. Then two right in town, that are always open to the public. San Cataldo, Cataldus was an Irish saint. <laughs> Don't ask me how he came along, but <laughs> it, it looks like a mosque. This church looks like a mosque but it's dedicated, it's always been dedicated to an Irish saint, Cataldus. And next to that, La Martirana Church with more Byzantine decorations um, and a couple of other churches and chapels. It's a beautiful city. I love it. And I um, always look forward to returning to it. Would you tell us a little bit, because I know you have written a book um, about the food and the history mm -hmm. of some Brazilian of the foods. food and wine. <laughs> so let's, why don't we move on to that for a little while? One of my favorite subjects. <laughs> well, um, you, know, all, all, you know, some of the things that I've told you so far, this mix of styles and cultures are, are still evident in our food, um, not just uh, Arab and Norman, uh, but the influence on our food goes back to the Greeks because the Greeks were here. We have incredible temples still standing from the Greek period in Sicily, uh, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, and, and then later after, after the Muslim, the Arab and the Norman period, we also had um, a Spanish period first connected to Catalonia, uh, you know, Barcelona area of Catalonia and, and Aragon. And, and then later connected to actually Spain. Okay. And then the connection with mainland Italy and northern Italy is strong too. So all this is, is seen in, in our food that varies um, incredibly. Uh, the cult, and then we grow all kinds of plants and trees in Sicily. This, uh, we have some of, of the highest number of plant varieties also for food products on the island. Um, so, what could I say? We 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 have we 
we grow a lot of uh, vegetables like like eggplants and and zucchini. Um, eggplants have been growing on the island apparently since the days of the Muslims. Um, then pistachios. We don't grow rice anymore. Um, unfortunately, after Italian unification, um, the rice uh, monopoly was moved to Piedmont and northern Italy. So we it, it actually be, a law was passed uh, saying that in Italy we were, we were not to grow rice anymore. Uh-huh. But we used to grow rice well into the late 19th century. Okay, um, that that doesn't mean that we don't use rice. We use rice all the time. Arancini, uh, I mentioned that earlier, is an incredible example. Arancini, the word means little orange. Um, there's a problem with the name of this wonderful round ball that's deep fried, and it's um, a type of risotto. Um, and that's then stuffed with either meat or vegetables uh, or fish, okay, or cheese. There's a problem with the name between Palermo, the city of Palermo, and the city of Catania and and Messina. Um, in Palermo, where we believe arancini were invented uh, during Mus- the Muslim period, we call this this wonderful dish arancini. From the feminine version, arancina. One arancina is arancina. So for us, an arancina is female and it's round. In eastern Sicily, in Catania, if you go up to a cafe and ask for an arancina, they'll they'll ignore you. <laughs> um, it's masculine and it's called arancino or arancini with an I. And the um, arancini in, in Catania are like a pear shape pointed at the top. So masculine. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. But what am I getting at? This food, this dish is so popular in Sicily. It's so much a part of our culture um, that it's prepared all over the island, even though the name varies slightly. I went. I was in a shop uh, where they were serving arancine uh, in Palermo, and there must have been ten different varieties, ten different stuffings in each one of these. It was hard to decide which one to choose, but they were all good. <laughs> I know they're all good. <laughs> yeah, I make them at home too. Oh, do you? <laughs> then another difference is that saffron was, is something that we've been cultivating since the time of the Muslims. We also make a, a a saffron-flavored pecorino cheese Mm. on the island. We've been doing so since the Middle Ages. It's called called, um, Piacentino Ennese from Enna. So in Sicily, in Palermo, our arancine has saffron in the risotto. It's a must. While in Catania or in other places like Trapani or elsewhere, you might not find the saffron in the risotto. And then there's the cassata, the beautiful dessert. <laughs> so tasty. Yes. Cassata is another, um, it's a dish, a dessert, obviously, that has a very long history. Uh, the original cassata was not so decorative. Um, it was just a pie, um, a pie baked in the oven, stuffed with fresh ricotta cheese, sheep's milk. It has to be exclusively sheep's milk ricotta cheese and then baked in the oven but over the century so it, it seems that it's a thousand years old the recipe 
Over the centuries, it became more and more elaborate. What we see today, the usual cassata cake that you find in shops and pastry shops, is what was elaborated during the Baroque period during the 17th and 18th century. And it has the icing on it, the candied fruit, but it's still filled with fresh sheep's milk ricotta. Um, and it has a, a sponge cake and it's it's actually the cold version. It's not baked in the oven. You, you prepare a sponge cake and then you put together your cassata cake. And then of course there are cannolis, okay? <laughs> oh, cannoli. <laughs> it's cannolo, one cannolo, okay, singular cannoli, um, plural. And even even that is a dessert that's been made for, for centuries, possibly going back to the 10th century. But unfortunately, we don't actually have the documents referring to it. Um, and cannolis, um, in Western Sicily, if you prepare cannolis with anything um, different than fresh sheep's milk ricotta, um, people will, will stare at you as if you're from Mars. <sighs> Pistachios are very popular, obviously, all over the island, but in, in the area of Catania, they come from Mount Etna, from Bronte. Um, and so I've, I've actually seen that in Catania, they might, may serve um, cannoli stuff with a, a freshly made pistachio cream, which is delicious. For us in Palermo, it's it's outrageous. <laughs> you just don't do that. I, I love I love pistachios too. The first time I ever had um, pistachio gelato was in the piazza outside the Cathedral of Monreale. <laughs> I had a gelato yes. with that flavor. I never tasted anything so good. Anyway, yeah, no, it's so natural. <laughs> I want to you to tell us about the company that you and your sister have begun um, a tour company. So tell us a little bit about that. So I've been guiding for over 25 years. And my sister Enza, she's been working in the travel business um, in at, in different com- local companies for over 25 years also. And um, the beginning of this year, uh, together, we put together a small company, uh, boutique travel company called Alio Tours. Okay, that's our name. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, with the lockdown, with uh, COVID all over the world, it, it was probably not the best year to do it. But we had to start somewhere. And and we, our idea is to... Um, get visitors to come and visit Sicily, but also Southern Italy, like Calabria and Apulia, which have a very strong connection to Sicily. We were once part of one kingdom called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which also included Naples, and also Malta. Okay, Malta was part of our kingdom until the year 1800 when Napoleon took over and then the Brits took over. So uh, we know Sicily well. Uh, we have connections all over the island, and we want to cater to, um, you know, small groups, like a boutique agency, uh, individual guests, people who want even a one-day experience. It doesn't have to be an entire tour, um, even one one day or two days, 
something special, a hands-on experience, uh, going to a farm where they make ricotta uh, or maybe a cooking class, uh, but also a, a guided tour or um, maybe um, people who are visiting trying to reconnect with their Sicilian family ties. There are many uh, people in the U.S. who have uh, who have, have been American citizens, maybe for their second or third generation, and they've never been to Sicily, even though their grandparents or great-grandparents came from here. So we'd be happy also to help these people to connect with uh, family or at least with their history in Sicily. Anyone listening who wants to get in touch with Jacqueline and her business, I'll put the uh, contact information in the show notes and where you can uh, see the book she's written. Jacqueline, you have written a book about the women of Sicily. It's called Women of Sicily, Saints, Queens, and Rebels. Yes. And that is such um, a large subject that I wanted to give ample time to. You have agreed to come back for yes, another I interview. I'd be very happy to uh, do Perhaps so. next week. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. And thank you so much for being with me today. You're very welcome. And thanks for inviting me, Andrea. Well, that's it for this episode of Italy Inside Out. This podcast is sponsored by Travel in Italia leading small group tours on the mainland and islands of Italy. You can find more information at www.travelinitalia.com. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to this podcast. And until next time, arrivederci.